Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I must say that you know, we're, while we're really excited to be with you all, we do have alternative, ulterior motives for coming down here, or once in a while. Uh, we, of course, love being with our daughter and our grandchildren and, and uh, sharing with them, but uh, we're glad that we have an opportunity to share with you. And, and uh, we're gonna, Today we're going to look at Psalm 103, so if you want to turn to that, I'm going to read it for you. And um, uh, I'm old, as you can tell, and so I've been reading my Bible. I've been reading out of the uh, 1984 NIV version for years, and I'm going to do the same this morning. So it might be a little different than what you're used to. Let me just uh, say, uh, I want to encourage you to read the, the scriptures, as, as was suggested earlier. Um, uh, just do it. Keep reading it. Keep going through it. I've made a habit of reading through the Bible, uh, and uh, I do it in about two and a half years. If that encourages you at all, I don't do it in a year. Uh, and when I get done doing it, I just do it again and do it over. And uh, I would encourage you to, to do this very same thing. Now, you could take five years. I don't care how long it is, especially if you're young. Even if you do it every five years, by the time you get to be 65, 70 years of age, you'll have read through the Bible several times over. And that's a great thing to do. Uh, so I would just encourage you to do that and, and to read your Bible through. Well, so let's take a look at Psalm 103. We're going to spend our time on that this morning. It's a great psalm. It says a lot of things, and we'll look at several of them as we share them today. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it and is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with, who, uh, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103.
The word praise the Lord occurs in the Bible 185 times. Uh, You can check that if you want, make sure I'm right. But I think that's correct. Uh, 96 of those times, it happens in the Psalms. So the Psalms dominates that idea of praise the Lord that's recorded in the Scriptures. Many would argue that Psalm 103 is the best of all the praise psalms in the book of Psalms itself, that this is the best one, that it has the most to share with us. And so we're going to look at it today with an idea of seeing how it encourages us and calls us to praise the Lord. The psalm starts out, uh, and it has three stanzas. We'll see three points, as you see in the notes there this morning. It starts out with personal praise, And then it expands from there to a larger context beyond the personal side of things. And in the call for personal praise, we begin by noting that true praise is soul praise. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praises holy name. And what I see when I read that psalm and read those words is that it's calling for a deep level of praise. Uh, and it, it's not just come in and, 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 you know, just off the cuff or mentally, intellectually say words of praise. It comes from deep inside of us. And could I suggest to you this morning that an awful lot of what is done in a church today, and I don't mean this church alone, but I'm saying in the church, capital C, uh, by way of praise, is rather shallow and not much soul. And when I make that statement, I have no stones to throw because I'm among those who've gone into a worship service. And, uh, you know, what I did there in that service didn't really reach soul level. I just kind of floated through it and didn't give a whole lot of thought to it. So I do not stand here to suggests that I have it and everybody else doesn't. I think it's something we all struggle with along the way. But praising the Lord with our soul is nurtured by reviewing our blessings. Notice what he says in verse 2 as he's moving down through the psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Verse 1, of course. All that is within me, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not his benefits. I don't know about you, but my inclination is to remember the difficult things and forget the good stuff. Do you have a tendency to kind of lean toward, I can remember that bad day, I remember that bad day, I remember that bad day, and I remember that bad moment, I remember that bad thing, and and the good things just sort of vaporize around us, and we don't stop to think about, well, wait a minute, there was a lot of good stuff going on along the way. That's where I am. I don't know if I'm alone on that, but it's kind of where I am. And so as I was creating this message and working on this message, I made a decision. I thought, you know what I need to do? Uh, One of the things I'm going to do going forward, I haven't done it before, so this is new to me, but I'm going to do it going forward from here, and that is that I'm going to have a prep sheet for worship. I want to get my mind thinking in the right direction. And I, as I prepare for worship, I want to get my heart ready to praise God. And here's what I'm going to do. And I suggest that you do the same, not exactly the same, but get yourself a prep sheet for worship. 
And maybe Saturday night before you go to bed or Sunday morning when you get up, and I realize there are some mothers that maybe are getting a half a dozen kids ready for school or for church, and they're thinking, you think I have time for that? You're nuts. <laughs> but if you do have time for it, I'm going to read this psalm over. Another passage I'd like to read over is Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about us being dead in our sins and God redeeming us. Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 11, what Jesus did when he left heaven's glory and he came to die for me. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, and then uh, 2 Corinthians four sixteen through five ten. Those are passages that speak to my heart. I want to get my heart where it needs to be with God. And then I'm going. I've got this written in my notes here: God's provision and protection. And I'm. I wrote this quote from Psalm one thirty nine. He hemmed me in behind and before. He has laid his hands upon me. And then I wrote down the things that God has done for me in my life. And I want to go back and look at those and reflect on those so that when I come into worship, my heart's ready to praise the Lord with all my soul. Can I suggest to you this morning that you create a prep sheet of your own, that you just review every Saturday night, every Sunday morning before you walk into worship to get your heart going on worship of the Lord that day. Um, I know Pastor Sean puts out the songs for Sunday that you're going to sing in the, in the worship service. You can look them up and hear them, and I know that the scriptures are there. But the psalmist has his own personal prep sheet that he uses to get himself ready for worship. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, forgetting not all of his benefits, he says. And then he lists some things about of the benefits that he has going for God. The first one is, who forgives all your sins. Do we need to go any further? If I stop to think about that? He forgives all my sins. Now, listen. He forgives all your sins. Almost all of us have some sins that we've committed that we just can't forgive ourselves for. And they keep haunting us. It keeps bugging us. It keeps coming back to us. And the devil keeps saying, you call yourself a good Christian and you did what? You did that? And we struggle and we struggle and we struggle with that. But I want you to know that God, for his part, forgives all our sins. All of them. They're all forgiven. John 1 9, 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, what does it say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. It's done. Psalm 103, verse 12. We'll get to that later and reference it again, but what does it say there? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Folks, your sins are forgiven. If you've confessed them to God, you've asked for forgiveness, they're done, they're over, they're gone, they're off the books, they're not on the records, they're not being remembered by God. He's not saying, oh yeah, but I still remember what you did back there then, when, or last week, Tuesday. You know, I remember that too. It's all gone. And that should prep us for praise. He's forgiven you all your sins. 
Then he goes on to say, he heals all your diseases. And when I read that statement, I think of the biblical concept of already and not yet. Uh, God indeed has healed many of us. And many here in this congregation, you know your own stories, but there have been some people who've been really sick, I'm sure. And, you know, through their doctor's care and medicine and the prayers of the church, they came through it and they moved on. And, and, you know, when you got done, you praised God for helping you get well and healing you of your disease. And I think of the body's own ability to heal itself. God built that into us, a word for praise. And still it's a not yet thing. He doesn't heal all our diseases in this life, in this context, in this dispensation, if you will. But when the new heaven and the new earth come, there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more sadness, no more pain, and no more disease. They'll all be healed all over again. The third thing he mentions in this text is he redeems your life from the pit. Now, here's where I went with that. When I think of my life being in the pit, I think of Ephesians 2. Listen to what it says. This is what Paul writes about us. As for you, he said, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is an outwork in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among, among them at one time. We're all there. We're all a part of that, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Later in that same text, it says you were without God and without hope in the world. Folks, for me, that's being in the pits. <laughs> that's being in the pits. I'm dead in my sins. I'm an object of God's wrath. I'm without God and I'm without hope in the world. If that's not being in the pits, I don't know what is. He redeemed your life from the pit when I was dead in my sins when I was without hope when I was an object of wrath apart from God's redeeming saving grace Jesus died for me and he provided a way for all of that to go away he provided for me in dead to become alive to have hope not just a hope but an eternal hope he put it all he gave it all to me and when I stopped to think about that, when I stopped to think that I was dead, I was hopeless, I was an object of wrath, and it all went away. That's a reason for praise, isn't it? He redeemed your life from the pit. And that's not the end of it. He crowns you with love and compassion. Now, again, when I think about God crowning us, what, what comes to my mind is John 1, 12. Here I was dead, hopeless, object of wrath. And what did God do? He, he took that away. But in taking it away, he did something even more than just take it away. What does John 1, 12 say? Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Wow. I went from being dead, an object of wrath, to being called a child of God. A child of God. Not a friend of God. Not a buddy of God. Not a 
you know, a, a member of God's community, but a child of God. In Romans 8, 17, it says something even more remarkable when it says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Now, can I say this expression? Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) Think about that. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. How could that be? How could I go from Ephesians 2 to Romans? How could I get there? If we think about that, our hearts are going to be filled with praise along the way. Then he goes on to say, He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I could preach this text. I could preach a whole sermon here. I won't, but I could who satisfies your desires with good things. God wants you to thrive. That's what he wants for you. God wants you to thrive. The world says, if you follow me, I'll give you real life. You'll thrive if you follow me. But as someone said, Promising more, the world delivers less. What does it say in Matthew chapter 7? Brought us away and why is a gate that leads to destruction? And many there are that go in there at and narrow us away and straight is a gate that leads to life. And few there are that find it. Only in God will you find satisfaction. Your life will be full and satisfied. Jesus said in, in John chapter 6 verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. He's saying, in me you can be satisfied. You can have life and it will be full. It will be meaningful. You will thrive if you follow me. When do people have enough alcohol? How much alcohol is enough? When when will they say, I have I am satisfied with all that I've drank. I don't need to drink anymore. When do people have enough pornography? I've seen all I need to see. I don't need to see anymore. When do people have enough money? I've made all the money I need to make. I don't need to make anymore. When do people have enough power? I have all the power I need. I don't need to have anymore. The world is always hungry. The world is always seeking for more. It is never satisfied. You follow the devil, you follow his ways, you follow his path, and you will never be satisfied. You will always need more. I need more alcohol. I need more pornography. I need more money. I need more power. You will always need more. Only in God will you have enough. Who satisfies your desires, not with junk, trash, sin, but with good things. Folks, is that not reason for praise? God satisfies me. I can be full in him. 
we can't linger long over these items that we've just reviewed and not find our soul stirred to worship the Lord who made it all possible. So that's our first stanza this morning. And, and the second stanza moves on and it calls for praise from all the people from the community of people, as it were. And verses 6 through 18, God uh, introduces to us to the idea that we need to have a, a, a the whole, all of humanity needs to identify and recognize praise. In the first verses, it's me and God. In the second set of verses here, it's us and God, if, you, if I can put it that way. And the psalmist is speaking that way. I think the key to this section, verses 6 through 18, is verse 8. Just look at verse 8. And it says in verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. That's a quote from Exodus 34. And how does God relate to us as a community of believers? You know, when he comes after us, if I could... Man, I shouldn't say after us, but when he's, when he's approaching us, when he's relating to us, what drives him? And verse 8 tells us what drives him. You know what? When God relates to us, all of us, what drives him is compassion, graciousness, patience. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. The God that you worship relates to you on those four points. When he sees us as a church, when he sees us as a community, his heart's filled with compassion, it's filled with grace, it's filled with patience, and it's filled with love. And I think it's fair to say that God does not relate to the people around him the way we do. How many times have I been around people and been less than compassionate, gracious, patient, or loving? But God is. Everything in this section that we're going to look at, in 6 through 18, everything that's written there relates to one of those four thoughts. Compassion, grace, patience, and love. That motivates us. And he, he responds to people, and he did in the past, uh, with, those, with those characteristics. And, and the writer quotes for us, or, or re- reflects back in verses 6 and 7, and I think he's reflecting back on Israel. He's saying, if Israel would go back and study its history, what do you see when you see God relating to Israel? If, you read, if you're reading in the Old Testament and reading about God dealing with Israel, they were not very good people. Fortunately, I'm much better. God has it a lot easier with me than he had with them. I'm glad you're laughing because that's the point. But what did God do with all those people? How did he relate to them? He showed them compassion. He showed them grace. He was incredibly patient with them. And he loved them. And in verse 6 and 7, that's the point of those verses. He worked righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, the people of Israel and Egypt. He saw that. He cared about that. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to find out that over and over and over again, somebody's repeating Israel's history to the people. So do you know what God did for us? And he tells the old story, the story over and over again. 
And I would say to you, look at your own history. As a church, for example, Pleasant Ridge here in this place, if you go back and review your history, the church I served and that we attend, Sandy and I attend these days, is going to have a 75th anniversary this year, 75 years old this year. <clears throat> we'll go back and look at our history. And you know what we're going to see when we look at our history as a church? God's compassion, God's grace, God's patience, and God's love. It's going to be all over it, all the way. When you look back at your history, what do you see? I would suggest to you that such a review brings us to praise. He continues to abound in love and grace and compassion uh, in the present as well. I think verses 9 through 14 talk about God's ongoing, continuous. It's not just history. It's here and now in the present day. God's care for us. How does God respond to sinful people, which we all are, of course? We all are sinful people. Nine and ten give us the answer. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Amen to that. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Uh, he, he does not always accuse us, nor harbor his anger forever. You know, when you stop to think about God, God is holy. I mean, he's holy, holy. And God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin. The fact that he would not accuse us and harbor his anger forever over us is almost against his holiness. How does he do that? How does he remain holy? And then, if, you, if I could use the expression, just sort of excuse the sin, at least for a time. How does he do that? Well, of course, we know that the cross plays into that, but that God would care enough about me that when I sin, I don't die. I go on, and he's patient with the process. It's remarkable to consider about that. He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve or pay me according to my iniquities. The fact that God is not fair is reason for praise. If God were fair, I'd be dead. I'd have long ago been toast if he were fair. But he's not fair. He doesn't want to be fair with me. He'd rather show me mercy than to show me fairness. Verses 11 and 12, we learn that there is no measure to God's measure. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. How high is the heavens? I mean, how far out does space go? We don't have numbers to count it. And the psalmist is just simply saying, how much does God love you? He loves you more than you can imagine. Sometimes we don't love ourselves very much. But God never stops loving us. As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we ask for forgiveness and he gives forgiveness, it's done. As far as God's concerned. It's not in fine print. It's not brought up again. It's not remembered later. It's not used to beat us up down the road. It's done. It's true for us every day. 
in every context. As you walk with God, he always will love you. And he will forgive you when you ask for it immediately. In verses 13 and 14, he continues to give attention to God's compassion and patience. Slow to anger. And actually, folks, these are my favorite verses in this whole chapter. I like these verses. They speak warmth to me. And I sometimes need that warmth along the way. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God, I want to say this again for you. God is your cheerleader. He's cheering for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to know fullness and wholeness. He wants you to live free from the burden and the weight of, and the guilt of sin. He wants you to thrive to use that expression again. He wants you to thrive. He's not laying traps for you along the way. Let's see what they do with this one. You know. No, God isn't laying traps for us. He's laying tracks for us. He's saying, I want you to go. And I want you to progress. And I want you to succeed. And I want you to expand and, and develop and deepen your walk with me. He's not laying traps. He's laying tracks for us. In verse 14, he says, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. We do not chide a three-year-old for acting like a three-year-old. When a three-year-old acts like a three-year-old, we just say to ourselves, that's how three-year-olds act. That's how they act. God does not chide us for acting like we are a fallen people living in a fallen world, stumbling toward maturity. Because God knows that's how fallen people work. He knows it. He knows it. All along, we do not live precisely all along, we have lived precisely by being forgiven. And at no time in our journey are we required to live any other way. That's a quote from J.I. Packer. All along, we live precisely by being forgiven. And at no time in our journey are we required to live any other way? I am not so far along in my spiritual journey that God says, okay, Larry, no more sin. We're done, right? You'll never fail again, right? You'll never mess up again, right? And if you do, you know, you, you've been at it too long. I've been too patient. No. God knows my dust. And, and he knows your dust. When I say God knows my dust, he knows where I'm going to easily trip and fall. He knows those places in my journey where I'm more likely to, to, to fail and to stumble. He knows me. He knows what I'm like. He knows my strengths. He knows my weaknesses. 
and he's nurturing me and wanting me to grow in my strength and minimize my weaknesses, but he also knows that, well, it's not a perfect world, and he's not a perfect guy, and he just knows that's the way it's going to be. And when I come back to him and I ask for forgiveness for him, from him, he offers it to me freely. Folks, God knows your dust. And he's working with you to deal with it. And he knows that you're not always going to do everything right. And as long as my heart comes back to him in confession and seeking his face and picking myself up and say, I'll try again. He loves that because that's what fallen people do in a fallen world. And he expects nothing else of us because that's who we are. And that's where we are. God's love and grace and compassion will continue with us all the way into the future, into eternity. Listen to verses 15 through 19. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, and the wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord loves is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. When I read this, <clears throat> I'm inclined to believe that what the psalmist is talking about, he's not just comparing life on earth with life in heaven. It's not just a simple contrast between life on earth and life in heaven. I think it's a contrast between those who follow God and those who don't. And I draw that particularly from verse uh, 16. The wind blows over it. He's talking about man's life. And it is gone. And the place remembers it no more. That's an interesting statement there. The place remembers it no more. Psalms 1, verse 6, says this. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It doesn't say ways, plural. It says way. And D.A. Carson points out here what, what that is saying is, is that God is going to watch over the righteous. And, and D.A. Carson puts it this way, 5,000 years into eternity, if I dare use the expression 5,000 years into eternity, that doesn't make much sense at one level. God will still be honoring us for our obedience and our love and our devotion to him that we had as we lived this world. But the wicked will be forgotten. They will be forgotten. The ways of the wicked will perish. There will be no memory of them, no reference to them, no acknowledgement of them for all of eternity. They will have been eradicated from the world of heaven and its presence. And I think that's what he's saying here in verse 16 when he, when he, when he makes that statement here uh, that the place will remember it no more. Folks, it's one thing to be forgotten after you die on this earth. It's quite another to be forgotten for all of eternity. Never to be known. Never to be recognized. Never to be acknowledged. 
And the psalmist is saying to us, listen, the way of the wicked will perish, but the way of the righteous will live on forever. And if you go over to verse, uh, uh, go down to verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Now, folks, if God's love is with me from everlasting to everlasting, where am I? I have to be around, don't I? His love can't be with me if I'm not here. What that verse is saying is, you are going to live forever. You are going to live forever. And you are going to live forever with me in heaven. You have everlasting, eternal life coming to you when you leave this world and go to the next. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. That's the only thing that can mean. In order for that to be true, I've got to be around. And the psalmist is saying, you're going to live forever. And verse 19, I think, verifies that. The Lord establishes his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's going to win this whole mess, this battle for us. And he will be the ruler Overall, there is such a thing, my friend, as everlasting life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, be forgotten forever, but have everlasting life. Is that reason to praise God? Is that reason to praise God from my soul? I think maybe it is. I think maybe it is along the way. Then we come to our last stanza this morning. The third stanza in the psalm is a call for praise from God's creation. Kind of gets off of us for a while. Takes the heat off of us if you want to think of it that way. Verses 20 through 21. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all the heavenly hosts. You servants who do his will. Praise the Lord all works everywhere in his dominion. The psalmist says to the angels and heavenly beings, whoever they might be, he says, he's not leaving anybody out here. He just says, heavenly hosts and angels, I want you to praise God. Now, folks, I would suggest to you that they need no prodding, really. They're doing it. They're praising God. They're up there in heaven and their voices sing praise to God all the time. The next, the psalmist calls for creation, to praise the Lord. And I would suggest to you that creation needs no prodding. The beauty of the seasons, the beauty of the sun, the beauty of... We go out in nature and as believers and understanding that God created all this, when we see that, we just marvel at God's creation. If you want to Read about the beauty and the, and the witness of God's creation. Read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. In the end, in the end, the only ones who need prodding to praise the Lord are you and I. The angels do it. Creation does it. But all too often we don't. We don't. Now folks, of all three of those points, the angels, 
creation, and us, who has the most reason to praise the Lord? Who has the most motive for praising the Lord? We do. The Bible says, I think it's in Peter, if I'm not mistaken, makes reference to the fact that when the angels consider Jesus and all God's dying for us and saving us and redeeming us, they long to look into these things. It baffles them that God would love those crooked, fallen people so much that he would die for them. And I would just say this to you in closing. Creation and angels in heaven and heavenly hosts should never outpraise us. Never. We should always be ahead of them. Our voices should be louder than theirs. Because we have more to praise God for than they do. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. God of heaven, I want to thank you for this psalm and for its reminder of why it is we should be praising you from the depths of our soul. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't get past our head. We say the words, but our thoughts, our minds, our hearts are somewhere else are not here, are not lost in praise. And God, as we consider this psalm, might we realize, oh, what I have reason to praise God for. And from those reasons, let our hearts be full and our praise be from the soul as we honor you every day and especially on Sunday. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.